The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. We begin overseas with the crisis in the Middle East that has now taken the lives of three U.S. soldiers. Officials say a drone strike in Jordan killed the three troops and injured more than 20 others. The White House blames Iranian-backed militants for the attack, and President Biden says he will respond. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. When that response will be, that's the big question. Good afternoon. I am Drew Mariani. It is good to be with you today. Thanks for hanging out with me. I'll give you a look at life you're not going to find anywhere else. It's great to have you uh, tuned in today. That's big news, right? Three U.S. soldiers killed. There's been over 163 attacks on U.S. bases. And now lives have been taken. That took place in Jordan yesterday. That report you just heard, they they mentioned, I think, 24, 23, something. The numbers I have seen are as high as 30 and 34 injured after a drone attacked an outpost on the Syrian border there. And they were the first Americans in the line of fire to be killed since the start of the, the Hamas-Israel war back on October 7th. And the U.S., of course, is blaming Iran for the attack. Here's a little bit more. Here's a little background for you on what has unfolded. The drone strike at what's called Tower 22 near the Syrian border in Jordan was carried out according to a statement from the White House. President Biden called the three Americans who lost their lives patriots in the highest sense, saying we will strive to be worthy of their honor and valor. We will carry on their commitment to fight terrorism and have no doubt we will hold all those responsible to account in a time and in a manner our choosing. The president holding a moment of silence for the service members at a campaign event in South Carolina. The response from Republican leaders has been critical of the administration's handling of increasing attacks from Iranian-backed militants. Just last week, the U.S. launched at least three airstrikes at Kataib Hezbollah, but in Iraq. Senator Lindsey Graham among those calling for a stronger response, saying hit Iran now, hit them hard. So Iran's come out. And their Iranian ambassador to the U.N. says, hey, look, we have had nothing to do with the attacks in question, period. And the conflict is between the U.S. and militia group, not not between Iran. I, I was just watching John Kirby uh, on a news feed here in my studio about a half an hour ago saying, hey, we don't want war with Iran. We, the U.S. does not want war. We don't want conflict. Of course, Iran doesn't want it either. Um, Republicans are calling, as you just heard there, they're calling the Biden administration out for not doing enough to protect U.S. troops in the region. I, I can't imagine if I had a son or daughter in service. No, they're going to the Middle East right now. They want they they say, look, this is enough. We've got to let Iran, who's backing the Houthis and all of these other rebels, 163 attacks on U.S. bases. We got to send them a strong message. Take out leadership. Take out significant assets. Others are cautioning a strike would probably get us involved in a wider regional war and nobody wants that i'll talk more about it coming up with retired lieutenant colonel uh, dakota wood uh a little later in in the hour here he'll be stopping by we'll 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 engage on what this could portend but let me just give you something spiritually before i go beyond this i was i was thinking about this you know I, i look at all sorts of information not just what comes from the media not just what's happening geopolitically but also in the spiritual realm and this is the opinion of Drew Mariani, nobody else's, okay? I'm just going to I'm going to disconnect that from relevant from anybody else. This is my own worldview. 
it's almost as though heaven is warning us right now. Not with these attacks, but I really do believe that there are a number of very legitimate apparitions occurring around the world. And the church in its wisdom and prudence will evaluate and ultimately determine whether they're authentic or not. But right now, and I remember there was a, a place in former Yugoslavia where the mother of God appeared on January 1st, and she called all of the people in that area, come out and to pray. It had rained for hours. It was ice cold rain. They went to this little hill called Mount Pobrdo, and they prayed for three hours in these miserable con- conditions because the Virgin said it was urgent they do so. Uh, we saw escalations of events afterwards. I almost think that kind of prayer and sacrifice, it extends the hand of God's mercy. It holds back the chastisement that is rightly due our offenses against him, right? The events that we are now beginning to bring on ourselves. Out of that same place, there was another message that just came on January 25th, and it was haunting because it was only one sentence. It was only a few words. And what the mother of God said was this. She said, my children, may this be a time of prayer period. My children, may this be a time of prayer. You wake up today, you hear about the U.S. now even closer to a regional war. And if we go in with Iran, what does that mean when it comes to China? What does it mean with Russia? Part of the great challenge to the Roman Empire is it fought battles on many different fronts. Take a look at the arena, how much munitions and money and effort has gone into Ukraine. Uh, China just recently crossed an international line uh, with Taiwan flying planes and ships in that Taiwanese strait there. What a perfect time to go in and take them, right, in the mix of all this other conflict. We've got Israel and Hamas in conflict, and now we've got the Middle East really beginning to ratchet up. And I remember one... One Mariologist I know say, keep your eyes on the Middle East. It's all going to begin there. I think we live in special times. I think God sends the mother of God at a critical moment in human history, as she has done across the centuries, to invite us to do one thing, right? That is to pray, to amend our lives, to return to God. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I was so convicted by this, these, these unfolding messages and events that I now see culminating, um, that I decided to to fast, and I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. Fast for peace, not just for your own personal needs, but fast that God will be merciful, that he will bring peace rather than war, okay? Fast if you can. Even if you give up one meal or, or, or one pack of cigarettes or whatever it might be, right? Your favorite television show, fast, offer to God, ask for his mercy. And also the rosary. And I, I'm not going to talk about it now. I want to get you up to speed on what's happening. There was a lot of other events that we need to pray for. But I'll, I'll talk maybe a little bit later in the show about it. But we need to pray the rosary. Rosary's been such an incredible weapon for bringing about peace. It, it really has. You can join Father Rocky at 7 uh, Central Time. He prays the rosary. You can join me in about an hour. We'll pray the chaplet. These two prayers hold back the hand of God, right? They, they bring about conversion. They bring peace. That's the fruit of prayer. It's peace. Right, right now, we're seeing the fruit of the rejection of God and a culture of death, and that's war. Right, So I think we're at a critical time. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. So I just invite you as my brother, as my sister, to today sacrifice and pray 
like you haven't before. I think we need to do that. My children, heaven is saying, may this be a time of prayer. So don't squander. Pray your rosary. Pray your rosary. Pray your chaplet. Go to mass. Spend time in adoration. Talk to God in sacrifice. If you do that, you know, I, I think things will be okay. I'm a man of hope. I mean, I think we live in a very special time. I'm so happy. I'm so delighted that I've been given this opportunity to share some of this with you. You can share your insights with me too anytime too, right? You got the number here. It's 888-914-9149. You can always email me, drew at relevantradio.com. We got other things happening in the country, right? Um, we have, a, and oh, by the way, one other thing too, I think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the whole Ron thing for a little bit later. We'll talk about that coming up. But, uh, gosh, uh, the Homeland, uh, Homeland Security Secretary, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. Have you heard what's happening there? Uh, that news broke over the weekend, too. Yesterday, House Republicans introduced articles of impeachment against him. And this is what they are claiming. They are saying this, and I'm going to quote. Uh, Republicans claim that he has, quote, willfully and systematically refused to comply with immigration laws, failed to control the border to the detriment of national security. I would agree with that. Compromised public safety and violated the rule of law and the separation of powers in the Constitution to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. So uh, guess what happened? <laughs> My orcas did not show up for the hearings. That, yeah, that, that put together those articles of impeachment. Little wonder why, right? The, the border, as I said before, is a mess. President Biden said he would shut it down. Really? What universe am I living in right now? Am I, am I in another dimension? Right? President Biden said he would shut down the border if Congress passes a Senate bill that would not only contain stuff about the border— but also has the funding in it for Israel and Ukraine. So all these things are contingent. I, I, I want to play a piece of audio for you. Before I do, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to put hooks into everything we want to pass? Let's put funding aside. Let's just deal with making the border safe. Let's vote on that. All right, now let's just vote on Ukraine funding, okay? Why do we have to attach everything to all this other stuff? It gets mired down. I'll do this. If you do that, if you attach this, then we'll do that. And then nothing gets done. Right, nothing gets done. Uh, his, his critics point out that he already has the authority to to shut down the border if he wants, like President Trump did at one point. But apparently, he wants you know he wants to trade for it. Here's a uh, here's the uh, Biden. Uh, here's the uh, president uh, saying that uh, he'll shut down the border. He was on News Nation when he said that. Listen to his own words. President Biden, meanwhile, vowing to shut down the border when it becomes overwhelmed, provided that Congress passes a new bipartisan border security bill. Biden saying, quote, if given that authority, I would use it the day I sign the bill into law. But Biden's comments shot down by Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, who said, quote, he knows that it is untrue. He can and must take executive action immediately to reverse the catastrophe he has created. Well, let me give you a little bit more, too, on um, what's happening with the state of Texas right now. You've got audio on governor's banking? Uh, we'll have to run that. Let me, I, state of Texas right now is trying to, to uh, trying their best to um, keep the country safe, right? Um, 4,000 migrants a day cross our border. Uh, you know, that that's a lot. Um Okay, well, let me rephrase it. There's been 1.5 million 
migrants that have crossed the border. The last number I saw, 4,000 migrants a day to cross the border for a week before they trigger a shutdown. That's kind of what they're proposing. The state of Texas, they're doing their best they can. They deployed razor ribbon, right? All this razor wire along the border. The federal government is saying, hey, take it down, open it up. You can't do that. They're trying to stop them from doing that. And as you heard, half of the governors across the country have told Governor Abbott, got your back. Some have even offered to send National Guard troops down there to support him. Uh, Listen to a few of what some of the different governors around the country are now saying. This is the governor of Georgia, Governor Brian uh, Kemp on the uh, border battle. Listen. I mean, this is a a no-brainer. Every state now is a border state. When you have Joe Biden's Democratic opponent saying this is uh, outrageous and out of control at the border, when you have Democratic mayors across the country that are saying this is outrageous and something's got to be done, and the Republican governors, we have been standing in solidarity for you know, well over a year, a couple of years now on the disaster at the border. I've been down there four times myself. The White House and Joe Biden just obviously doesn't get it or they don't care. Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think they get it for sure. I think they care. I think they see this. And I had an interesting conversation with somebody last week about how there's a hope to get non-citizens to vote. Is it a power play? Uh, Governor uh, Greg Gainfort uh, from Montana, he had this to say about the border. Listen. Yeah, well, let's put a clear point on this. I mean, we since Joe Biden has taken office, we've seen 10 million people cross the southern border illegally. That's 10 illegal immigrants for every citizen of the state of Montana. Uh, we're seeing the implications here on the northern border. We've been arresting Mexican cartel drug dealers in the state of Montana. We are being overwhelmed. There is no word to describe this except invasion. Uh, the open border policy of the Biden administration is making every state a border state. And it's time for the uh, administration to step up and do their job. That's why it was not a question about whether we were going to stand uh, mm-hmm. with Governor Abbott in protecting the southern border. Yeah, again, that was the governor of Montana sharing a stunning number. 10 million, right? 10 million people have crossed that border. That is stunning. Now there's a convoy of truckers headed to the border. They're coming from all around the country, all points. They're calling themselves the Army of God. <laughs> love it, right? You know, truck on. That's awesome. I mean, these guys, I love it. They, they want to bring attention to what's happening uh, there with stops in Eagle Pass and uh, Yuma, Arizona, and, and th- different places along the way. And they're calling this a peaceful assembly. Uh, guess what the liberal media are, are claiming, right? Oh, this is going to be a big mess. Look what's happening. Um, yeah, I think these guys will be peaceful. I don't see any problem there. So let's pray that it is peaceful. Meanwhile, Customs and Border Patrol said over the weekend that their members are going to stand with Texas. And Catholic Vote actually reported that it, you know, it slammed the Biden administration for what they're calling catastrophic border policies. A part of the problem the border crisis is giving us right now. And here's the big concern. This goes back to what we were saying about Mayorkas and the reason for impeachment. Um, there are a large number of military-aged single men who are coming across that border. There was former uh, FBI intelligence experts, counterintelligence experts. Uh, they wrote a letter actually telling Congress 
that we're facing a new and unfamiliar danger in our country. And it may manifest in the not-too-distant future. They say, and I'm going to quote this, they say, quote, military-aged men from across the globe, many from countries or regions not friendly to the United States, are landing in waves on our soil by the thousands, by foot, across a border that has been accurately advertised around the world as unprotected and ready-access granite. They also mentioned the, those gotaways, the people that you know have evaded capture deliberately. After crossing, uh, out of that 10 million number you heard, 1.7 million. 1.7 million. Stunning, stunning, stunning numbers. Pray for the safety in our country as well. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what what unfolds. So much going on in the world, and it's all connected, isn't it? It really is. Um, Ambassador uh, Francis Rooney is going to be stopping by. I want to get him into the conversation as well because I, I want to I want to address another issue that. Uh, I heard um, Benjamin Netanyahu last week uh, oppose the idea of a two-state solution over in the Middle East. And we know on October 7th, Hamas goes in. We see this powder keg over there now. And I'm wondering, how does this get resolved? Okay, the war will come to an end. What happens to all these Palestinian refugees? What happens with Israel? For, for years now, one of the solutions promoted by the U.S. and even by the Holy See to help resolve that conflict is to have a two-state solution, right? The proposal would give Israel its current territory. It would also give the Palestinians control of the, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So this is something that's been discussed, uh, you know, early in, in the pontificate of John Paul II, if not before. So uh, here to join me today to give us a perspective on it is Ambassador Francis Rooney. He represents, uh, represented, I should say, the 19th District of Florida until 2021, but he also served as U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See under George W. Bush. And uh, it's great to have him back here with us today. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. Welcome. Drew, thanks for having me back on. So this is something you had to deal with, I'm, I'm assuming, when you were ambassador uh, to the, the Holy See as well. Um, give me your take on what's happening right now between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu saying he doesn't, he's not favorable to, to, a, to a two-state solution. I know that the church has always thought that this is a good solution. What are your thoughts? What's the church saying? And, and how do you see this just kind of unfolding? Really, ever since 1949, uh, even Israel, for, for the most part, has backed the two-state solution as the only aspirational long-term solution to the problem. People need a country. The problem is finding Palestinians that are capable of operating a company. You know, Hamas was brought in, uh, including supported by some in Israel, mm -hmm. because the PA was so corrupt and the country was not functioning. So everybody hoped Hamas would be able to get the garbage picked up and have the water and electric systems and things like that work. But then they devolved into the same level of corruption and incompetence that the PA had deployed. Hmm. What do you make? Uh, I understand how tensions must be for Israelis right now after your loved ones have been, you know, abducted and massacred. And, you know, you got the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is doubling down basically on his refusal to support a Palestinian state in Gaza. And he pledges to win the war and assure there will be no entity in Gaza that, that finances terrorism or educates terrorism. What do you see unfolding? I mean, uh, Anthony Blinken, this, this, you know, the, the secretary of state here insisted that uh, it was last visit to Israel, that the two state solutions got to be followed. How does this, how does this shake out? Ironically, the better that, that BB does, 
and Israel does and the IDF, the higher possibility that we do get an aspirational Palestinian state at some point. But again, there's still impediments that need to be worked out. You know, at the end of Clinton's term, uh, Ehud Barak met with some people from the agency and uh, um, Arafat. And Barack wrote down on a piece of paper everything Arafat had asked for and said, hey, we'll give you, we'll do all of it. We don't care. We'll give you every bit of it. And Arafat walked out. Wow. Apparently, Olmert offered the same thing years later to Abbas. And Abbas walked out. They really, behind the scenes, they've been offered this, uh, basically everything they want several times, but they're not ready and capable of doing anything constructive. They're only ready and capable of causing mayhem to Israel so that they can raise more money and uh, go about their terrorist ways. Are attitudes changing nationally, or not nationally, but globally? Um, are people more favorable now to Israel's position towards this? I mean, a lot of the world's looking at Israel right now as aggressors and having had committed genocide. These types of claims are being made. So what's the worldview on how peace you know, is resolved I, I think in, middle, realize in Israel. Most, most sane people, I think, seem to realize that Israel has got to protect itself in yeah, this mayhem. Yeah. And deep down inside, nobody likes a chaotic, out-of-control uh, Islamic state. But to, to go from where we are now to some kind of uh, structured solution, it's going to take a little more bloodshed because of the way Hamas operates with the human shields and that, you know, they don't value life like we do, so they don't mind putting human shields out there and, and putting their, their armaments at the bottom of hospitals. I worked the uh, 2007 Lebanon war with, uh, against uh, Hezbollah, and they were doing the same things because they really don't care who they kill. They want to just try to uh, make Israel look bad. My guest today is Ambassador Francis Rooney. If you want to join us, I'll have him for a few moments. Our number is 888-914-9149. Taking a look and navigating the complexities of uh, a two-state solution and uh, Israel and Palestine and the quest for some sort of resolution there. And and this has gone on for a long time. I know John Paul II and Benedict XVI and Pope Francis, they've all called uh, for, for this solution. But... You know, I, 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 you got concerns about security, right, uh, over there. And you also have got the dignity of the people who've been displaced, like the Palestinians. Uh, who's the mediator in this? I, there's been talk also of now getting China involved. Uh, who's who's going to be the pivotal player in helping to bring resolution? At the end of the day, this is an Arab problem and a Muslim problem. And to me, to accomplish anything long term, we're going to have to draw in the neighboring Arab states yeah. to take an affirmative role in dealing with their problem, Palestinians. It's their people. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ambassador, I'm grateful for your time and for your perspective. Uh, I'm hoping the war in the Middle East ends soon. Uh, yeah. Please pray, right? And I, I know yeah. you do, and I'm, I'm grateful for, for all that you do. If people want to follow you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I think I have a Twitter and Instagram called at Rep Rooney. At Rep Rooney. All right, we'll check it out. Hey, thank you for being here. Appreciate your, All your right, insights. Drew, have a good day. Yeah, God bless thank that, you. That's Ambassador Bye. Francis Rooney. And gosh, it's a complex situation. I don't have answers for it. Um, you know, this whole, this the history of the two-state solution goes back uh, a long way. The United uh, Nations General Assembly proposed the partition of Palestine 
into Jewish and Arab states. This is back in 1947, just to give you a little perspective. A plan that was accepted by Jewish leaders. It was rejected by Arab leaders, as uh, as you know. Um, then we had uh, the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and Israel declared to, you know independence. And the West Bank came under Jordanian control. Gaza was controlled by Egypt. And in 1967, you had the Six-Day War. It resulted in Israel capturing the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza, bringing the territories and their Palestinian populations under the Israeli control. Palestinians say, hey, we've been oppressed. We've had no ability to to move. Uh, Israel's continuing to oppress us with greater security, um, you know, restrictions. And over the years, there's been peace initiatives. There's been conflict between these two countries. The popes, like I said, John Paul II, um, I always look to him. He's, he's lived through communism, right? He saw the evils of Nazism. He, he, he believed we should have international guarantees, for some of those most sensitive areas of Jerusalem and, and to assure freedom of religion across the holy sites for all faiths. This is a hotbed. Um, and he negotiated for a solution that led to two independent and sovereign states. And of course, this was re-echoed by other popes. Um, we need to pray. Uh, I don't know how it's going to get resolved. Uh, and I don't blame the Israeli people. I understand if somebody came across and kidnapped my, my family members and massacred people in their homes and, you know, we, we have a history of terrorism coming from these areas. You're going to make sure that that is eradicated, right? But at the same time, from where I stand here, and I know many people feel this way too, you look at the plight of the Palestinian people. Um, there's a dignity um, uh, that's being deprived them right now. I mean, they're, half the countries, half of the Gaza Strip has been turned to rubble. Uh, there's famine and starvation going in some areas. It's all because of these terrorists. We have to get some sort of aid and relief to them and find some way that people can live together. I don't have the answer. I, w- I wish I did. Uh, you know, I'll leave it to minds much brighter than mine. I've got to take a short break. When we come back, uh, let's talk a-, a little bit more. In fact, I want to talk about what's happening with Iran because this is really where my heart is today in terms of a call to pray. Uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dakota Wood will be stopping by. He warned us uh, on this show months ago about the depletion of U.S. munitions. And we've given so much already to so many different conflicts. And we might be in uh, to another conflict, not just maybe with China if they decide to make the move sooner rather than later. But if a regional conflict breaks out in the Middle East, allies are going to want support militarily. And U.S. troops might even hit the ground there. So who knows? We'll look at what might be happening. And uh, all that and more coming right up. Stay with me. All the news and issues of the day. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. The U.S. says that three soldiers are dead after a drone attack on a military base in Jordan near its border with Syria. Now, this attack targeted a base known as Tower 22. This is right across the Syrian border and very, very close to a U.S. military base in Syria that's been run by special operation forces as part of their anti-Islamic state fight for years. Militia groups in Iraq have claimed this attack. They say they launched a drone targeting the U.S. forces. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, you heard it, right? Three killed, 35 at least injured. And this is, I think, the 163rd attack on U.S. personnel, servicemen. It's the first time since October 7th. There's attacks from Hamas on Israel that service members have been killed in the region, although there there have been more than 100 
67 tax around. I mean, it's unbelievable. That number's always changing. Uh, it does not include two Navy SEAL members. Remember what happened last last week? Uh, one guy was trying to uh, send a ship, lost his footing, went in. The other Navy SEAL, if one guy goes in, you go after him. They went in. They both are missing and declared dead. They tried to climb the side of a vessel that had munitions that were being sent to uh, from Iran to Yemen, right? So... Uh, the president said uh, in response that the U.S. is going to respond in a time, in a manner of our choosing. Um, listen, this is a the response of a Navy SEAL. Uh, and this outpost has supported some of those special forces. Uh, this is his response to the attack. Listen. This is an act of war, and it didn't come without warning. There have been 160 attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East since mid-October. How does the president respond? This deserves to be more than just a three-day story. You know, it, you're right. It does deserve to be more than just a, a three-day story. But you just said it yourself. There's been over 160 attacks, and that's just in that area. That's not including uh, the issues that we've had with the Houthis in uh, the Red Sea. But what is the common denominator here is that the either uh, Biden and his administration either does nothing or they do uh, what they the rhetoric that they use is a proportionate and singular response and and so they will pick areas that they can uh, carry out airstrikes on um, but those airstrikes by and large do nothing to stop the head of the snake which is Iran and it doesn't matter if it's Hamas Hezbollah uh, the, whoever is responsible for this particular attack or the Houthis in the Red Sea. Iran backs these individuals regardless of Shia or Sunni mm -hmm. uh, ties, and they back them with money, weapons, and training uh, because this is how they fight through proxy wars. Yeah. Yeah, so he's a U.S. Navy SEAL, and he's not alone. Uh, many Republicans right now are pressuring the president to respond forcefully. In fact, they don't want him just to hit some Iranian-backed militias that are based outside of Iran. They want the, him to go in to send a message to the head of the stake, as you just heard, to hit Iran and take out leaders, take out strategic assets in that, in that area. The president says we're going to strike at a time and in a matter of choosing. I heard John Kirby about an hour ago uh, addressing the issue, and he came out and says, we don't want war with Iran. We, do, we, we don't want a conflict with them. I'm sure Iran doesn't want a conflict with us, but that's not stopping uh, the constant attack on on our personnel. The Biden administration, just like the Obama administration before it, has given billions of dollars to Iran and allowed Iran to continue to advance their nuclear weapons program. I heard another expert the other day, he was saying they're very close to getting a nuclear weapon. In fact, the estimates are that, that Iran has now enriched uranium to the 60% level. So they're close. It won't take them long to get to the point where it will be weapons grade. And if that happens, they're certainly going to put it in the warheads Put those warheads on missiles. They're probably going to point them at Israel, maybe even the U.S. But, and here's where we'll get the uh, perspective of retired Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood. Striking in Iran, if we were to do that, and a lot of people say, yeah, do it. Well, I'm all about prudence. It comes with a very real possibility of opening a much bigger, much wider regional war that nobody in their right mind wants. Right. How do you get out of that? Easy to start a war, hard, hard to stop one. There's, there's also the possibility of it widening perhaps into a global conflict. 
So here for perspective and some analysis is none other than uh, Dakota Wood, served 20 years in the Marine Corps, retired as lieutenant colonel, as I said. Uh, right now, you can check him out. He uh, is the author of the, the annual report, the Index of Military Strength. And I do want to talk to him a little bit about where we are as a nation in, in that area. But right now, he's Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation. You can check them out at heritage.org. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, thank you for being here. Great to talk with you again. It's always uh, good to talk with you. It's always a blessing for me. And I think you, you teed up all the great points there. Uh, difficult, difficult problems and the solutions <laughs> are just hard to find. So, yeah, well, so let me throw it to you. This is your area of expertise. I mean, you have voices from both sides. Some saying, hey, we want to be strategic and mm -hmm. proportional. And I, I do understand that. You got others saying it's only going to go on. We're at 163 attacks. We've lost U.S. lives now, right? And others have been injured. Um, what kind of message do you send? And, and everybody knows it's Iran that's behind this, even though their ambassadors come out and they said, oh, we have nothing to do with it. How do you parse through that? What's what's an appropriate response from, from the U.S.? Well, you know, I, I think you have to just say, uh, if you don't have a specific phone call where an Iranian leader told a militia group in Syria to launch a drone at these Americans, even if you don't have that, as you said, Everybody knows after 10, 20, or 30 years of behavior that none of this would be possible without Iranian support. I mean, the Houthis don't make refrigerators, you know, <laughs> much less <laughs> missiles there in Yemen. And the same goes for the militia groups in Syria and Hamas and Gaza and elsewhere. So Iran is the, is the mind and the muscle behind all of this stuff. And at some point, you have to go right to that uh, entity. Now, you know, the problem is it's like letting little crime get firmly rooted in your community, organized crime comes in, it's lucrative for them, and then you decide to do something, well, that, those crime bosses are going to fight back. If you've got little kids and you're not training them properly and disciplining them and praising them in appropriate moments, and all of a sudden you get unruly teenagers or young adults going in their own way, and now you want to step in right, and try to, to show what the proper path is, you talk about rebellion, right? Mm -hmm. And so at, at an international level, that's what we have allowed in this issue with Iran. You know, we try to buy them off with billions of dollars to get uh, prisoners freed or to try to get them to pull back from the nuclear program. Uh, very, very limited strikes, you know, supposedly proportional, yeah. kind of a tit-for-tat sort of thing. Yeah. And all that does has told Iran that they can get away with anything, basically, further entrenched in the region. The United States looks weak, and now we want to do something about it. So this risk of a broadened war is a very real risk. If you don't take steps, though, to impose an actual cost mm -hmm. that hurts Iran, for which they will respond, then you're just incentivizing to do more of this, right? We've just allowed ourselves, through policy decisions, to get in a very bad uh, way and it's going to be costly whichever direction we go. But, but we have got to respond back by hitting Iran directly. So, so, how likely is it that this will become if we go in and take Iran? I mean, nobody wants war with the U.S. I'm convinced right. of that. But um, how likely or how possible is a regional war as a result of this? And and U.S. Uh, troops I, being there and, and, and yeah. so much more. Other players getting involved. Unless you could get an assurance from Iran that they will bring these militia groups to heel, and there was some kind of a guarantee, you know, proven evidence that supported that, uh, the, the risk of a regional war is higher than it's been in, 
I don't know, since the 1970s, uh, perhaps. It's really dangerous, this crossing the line of actually killing U.S. service members. Up to that point, you could kind of ignore things. You know, somebody launched a missile or a rocket at our folks in Iraq, for example, didn't really hit, didn't really hurt anybody, and so you can kind of, you know, wish it away, right? Issue another strongly worded diplomatic declaration. But once you start killing Americans... The pressure on Biden, President Biden, to respond is going to be enormous. And yet this occurs within the context of our domestic uh, political you know, uh, election season. So Biden can't look weak. You have to defend our service members in the country. And yet the last thing he wants to do is get a war going in the Middle East. So what is he to do? It's his own fault for being so timid the last two or three years, right? But this is a situation where we find ourselves. And it'll get to another point that you raised about whether our military can actually do this. Do you have forces, position, status, munitions, and those sorts of things? It's just an ugly situation. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So that brings up an interesting question. You know, your thoughts on the U.S. level of preparedness for, let's say, an asymmetric type of warfare, which is often encountered in the Middle East. How prepared are we for that? Well, if you want to do something cyber, you know, you take out their banking system or maybe you mess up uh, the computers that, uh, that they are so essential to their nuclear program or you make foreign investment accounts you know, disappear. I mean, there are things that are non-kinetic you know, that you can do. I, you know, sanctions have been uh, fruitless, uh, haven't worked at all. They're not diplomatically isolated because they've got support. Uh, from you know Turkey and China and Russia and others in that region, even India. So it, it almost has to be a military strike because you know violence or military power is the currency of the realm in that region. And, and so you know the, the Pentagon is going to come up with a list of options. You can go after uh, Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps or Quds Force. You can yeah. go after specific individuals. Yeah. You could do a naval bases yeah. in the um, in the Persian Gulf. You could attack the factories, perhaps that are making these drones before they're shipped. You know, to the people who are going to use them in uh, Syria or Yemen or mm-hmm. elsewhere. So there's a whole laundry list of things that you could strike, and they will give pros and cons. So what does it take to actually do this? Right? What do we think the consequences might be? Are you prepared for whatever blowback comes? And we've got 2,500 Americans in Western Iraq. We've got 3,000 in Jordan. We've got eight or 900 in Syria. And, and we've got military installations in Bahrain and in Qatar, uh, Oman. Uh, so there, there are U.S. facilities that dot that region. And they would then all be subject to some kind of a strike if if, his, if Iran decides to do something in, in retaliation. You know, my concern is, it, let's say we do something cyber, we take out some military leaders or you know, we take out a naval mm-hmm. base. Um, the threat of cyber warfare, um, is the U.S. adequately prepared for Because Iran's pretty good at it, right? I mean, this is your area of expertise more, yeah. more than me. Uh, the threat of cyber warfare in the Middle East as well here at home, uh, you know, will we see, you know, as you said, we may not see kinetic um, retaliation from Iran, but they, they could do some damage, uh, you know, via a cyber attack. They, they really could. Uh, you know, all the folks I talked to in that business were very, very good on offense, uh, problematic on defense. Uh, if you remember stories where there was a cyber attack on an oil distribution network oh, that yeah. came up uh, the East Coast, uh, the city of Atlanta, Georgia, I believe, had all of its records lockdown, you know, with a ransomware. Um, Sony uh, Music uh, was attacked by North Korea. 
So you, you have private enterprise like sure. banking systems, healthcare, hospitals, education facilities, power distribution grids, and, and they're not all connected to like a nationally managed network with protections, right? They're very careful about saying that they have a vulnerability because you want to maintain confidence in the public right. and whatever this organization is. Right. Uh, but they're all uh, vulnerable at some level. And so if it wasn't just Iran, but Iran had Chinese support or North right. Korean or Russian hackers, you could see some damage being done across the country. Yeah. Well, my guest today, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood, if you want to join us, I need to take a short break. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, when we come back, we'll take a few calls. You can get in. The number's 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. You can call now. Taking a look at uh, the latest developments in the Middle East, in particular with Iran and the loss of American lives. How big can this get? What's proportional? And um, what are the looming threats? We'll be back with more right after this. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy, live, coming up. You're listening to The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, one of the things I really want to encourage you to do is to pray for peace. I believe prayer changes things. It, it does. It, it mitigates evil. It restricts it. Let's pray for rational minds and, and compassionate hearts. And let's ask God for protection over our country from degeneration from disaster from war from anything else that may may threaten it um you know i'm looking at events unfold in the middle east and the u.s is involved in ukraine uh who knows what we're going to see in the taiwanese strait and of course the middle east right now is a hotbed if you're just joining me we're talking about rising tensions there as a port came out earlier today where 100 and where well where three u.s um, service people have lost their lives uh, dozens others uh, injured, and this is, I think, the 163rd attack on U.S. forces. And, uh, you know, everything points right back to, to Iran uh, getting behind a lot of these militias and these these groups. Um, the U.S., after having lost lives, there's a call for it to respond. And historically, our response has always been very measured, aiming to balance the need for security and retaliation with the risk of uh, a broader regional conflict. And uh, we'll see how the U.S. responds here. And I've invited today to give us perspective uh, Dakota Wood, Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood. He's retired, served 20 years with the Marine Corps, senior research fellow for the uh, defense program at the Heritage Foundation. They put together an annual report called the Index of Military Readiness or Military Strength. And when when the Lieutenant Colonel was with me before, he warned you know, about just our munition supply, how much has gone to Ukraine and other places. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel, let me pick up on that point. I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure. Um, yeah, and this is your area of expertise. How ready are we? Uh, you know, we've put a lot of money. There's call for more funding for Ukraine. Uh, we've sent a lot of munitions. Mm -hmm. And we need to be ready if there's a conflict in the Middle East or something happens in the East. Um, your, your thoughts, where are we right now? Where, and what will the index of U.S. military strength reveal? What are you reporting? Well, from strong, very strong to very weak, we assessed our current military as weak. So it's not an indictment of the men and women that serve. They're just great Americans doing really wonderful things, but they work with very old equipment. Uh, the services are only half the size that they need to be based on historical evidence, and they're not able to train enough. So during the Cold War, 
when we face the Soviet Union on a global scale, if you think of that as a reference point, pilots in the Air Force supply between 200 and 300 hours a year. Today, the average pilot flies less than 130. The airplanes they fly are older than the pilots flying them. The average about 30 years old with the frontline fighters. In the Cold War, we had 29 fighter squadrons in Europe alone. Wow. Today, the entire active duty Air Force only has 32 squadrons. The Army was almost 800,000 soldiers in 1989. Today, they're at 452,000. And by the end of this year, they'll reduce further to 445,000. So they shrank by 33,000 soldiers last year alone. And the numbers are just bad. We've got half the number of ships today we did during the 1980s. And everybody's just as able to shoot less, fly less, drive less. And we've got few people. We work really hard doing great things. But it's just a, an old, small military. Yeah. So um, that's what we're dealing with. And recruitment numbers are low, too. I, I, I think the Marines were the only ones that met their quota, but everybody else well below that. So, yeah, yeah I, that's correct. I, I'm looking at the national, international picture. You know, in addition to the Middle East, China's been making all kinds of noise and moves about taking Taiwan. Russia is rumored to want to draw NATO into a land war in, in Europe. Uh, North Korea is continually firing missiles, right? They're, and they, they eliminated the possibility of reunification with the South. Um, if, if things go left, if they go awry here, can we handle all of this? I mean, what's that look like? Yeah, if you mobilize the entire U.S. military, you could probably engage in one major regional war. Yeah. So, you know, defense of Taiwan or if something in Europe happened where we thought we had to get involved or the Middle East is up in flames. But, but that would take everything. And it's questionable whether or not we would come out ahead in that. You know, I mentioned the Navy. If you've got 292 ships, so let's yeah. just say 300, and about 100 of those are, are available on any given day. Of that, maybe 60 are in the Western Pacific. Well, China has 360 ships operating close to home. The nearest naval base for our ships is about 1,200 miles away, 1,200 to 1,500 miles. So when you look at the world geographically and you look at where we have capabilities, they're just not much compared to the totality of who your opponents is. Up to about a year or so ago, the military hadn't bought uh, a Stinger missile, which is the shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missile, hadn't bought a Stinger missile in 17 years. So the companies that make the parts for those missiles went out of business a decade ago, right, or longer. So these are facts that, I mean, they're actual hard facts that have not been shared with the American public. We can say we've got the world's greatest military people-wise, yeah, great leading-edge technologies, but it's just not very much. And, and we would be hard-pressed, I think, to win in a, in a major regional war. Well, let's do this. I only have a few minutes. We'll grab a call or two. Jeannie's been waiting for a while in Texas to join the conversation. She's got a question for you. Jeannie, hi. You're on the air with the retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dakota Wood. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. Just a quick comment. Um, I was listening. I guess we were having the press conference. And I know it wasn't Pierre who was talking. It was a different lady. Uh, but one of the people, I guess in the press league or whatever, asked asked her, what was different about this? this uh, drone. Why did it do so much damage, hurt so many people, and then kill three of our servicemen? Her response, and it really angered me, was it was the time that it happened. They were asleep. Well, they were asleep. There was was, uh, and and, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, I'll let you respond to that, but I had also heard reports that perhaps they mistaken Mm -hmm. it as a U.S. drone that was returning from a mission. 
Yeah, there was one returning about the same time. So, you know, you go back to December 7th, 1941, there was a flight of American aircraft coming into uh, one of the air bases there in Hawaii, and the Japanese had launched their air assaults on Pearl Harbor at the same time. And so your radar picture kind of gets complicated for what's going in. Can you really determine whether something's a threat or not? But this time of the attack, if you recall in Beirut, 1983, 241 service members killed because a suicide bomber rammed through a gate, detonated a massive truck bomb, uh, and collapsed a building in which all those people were sleeping. So these attacks in the dead of night, when you have folks that are uh, resting, uh, when your defensive systems are having a problem picking out a threat uh, from what a friendly device coming in, things can go very bad. And in terms of the explosive package, drones come in all sizes, something that you can launch from your hand with a camera to very big things that can file hundreds and hundreds of miles and carry a sizable explosive payload. So this appears to be one of those latter which is why, you know, it hit the building at just the wrong time for us with a big explosive, and we see the results of that. Well, let me sneak one last call, and I have a moment or two left. Mike's in Redding, California. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon. You're on the air. Good afternoon. I just wanted to bring up the fact that our greatest ally, um, Poland, now has a leftist government. So... They have been really the blockade between the Soviet Union and Europe and NATO and everything. And that's just real concerning to me. All right. Hey, Dakota, I'm going to give you final thoughts. You heard his comments. Um, yeah. I know. Yeah, I know. The, the, Go ahead. Yeah. Po- Poland is hosting over a million, maybe closer to two million Ukrainian war refugees. So they've been feeling the blunt of what conflict is, and it's generated some problems with their farmers and their economy, et cetera. But the caller is right. I mean, they have really been standing up there on the frontier of Belarus, uh, you know, between Russia, Belarus, and Kaliningrad, which is also Russian territory just to the north of Poland. And if we lose Poland as a strong ally, it's going to be a really hard day for us because our other allies like Great Britain, France, Germany, et cetera, are very weak militarily, worse off than we are. If we had time, I'd give you the numbers, but I know we need to move on. So, um, yeah, the world is a shaky place. We don't have a lot of military capability compared to what we used to do. And our opponents are very much militarized, very aggressive, and very serious about pushing forward their agendas. Well, if people want to check out the index for U.S. military strength, what's the best way to do that? Heritage.org slash military. And everything is online. You can check it all out there. Thank you for so much time. It's always good to talk with you. I'm going to pray the chaplain. I'll pray for you and all of your intentions. Thank you. You God bless. God bless you. That's Lieutenant Colonel, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood. Chaplain of Divine Mercy straight ahead. Stay with me.